Promise No Promises Feminism Under Corona Episode 1 A One Flavor Reality The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 new episodes arise from conversations between Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. Beyond simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the current crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism when not only gender, class and race imbalances are reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. The first episode entitled A One Flavor Reality is a continuation of a conversation with artist Ruan Chang about the effects and consequences of COVID-19 in a reality that is also mutating despite the confinement of our bodies being locked at home. The first conversation I had about COVID-19 with the artist Ruan Chang took place in Paris at the end of January 2020, on the occasion of her exhibition Resolution of Traits at the independent art space La Aha. The virus that had caused a new disease, first in Wuhan and China, was now appearing in France, and by then no longer an alien entity but instead becoming a European reality. Despite the many speculations we shared in Paris, neither Ran nor I imagined that the outcome would be a global pandemic and confinement. But already then, we felt the awakening of Western prejudices about the Chinese community. The second conversation with Ran took place in April 2020 in Berlin, during two different moments. She was staying at home in her room in Neukölln, and I was staying in mine, in Kreuzberg connected within the digital turn of human relations at a time when contact between bodies is forbidden but not forgotten and when time seems to have stopped to move forward more quickly. This conversation with Ran is an attempt to approach the current situation from her personal experience, from her situated knowledge and from her enormous and sparkling ability for storytelling. Viruses, molecular structures, prejudices, feminist prejudices, food markets, factories system of work, care and affection, the couple and the coupledom, confinement, hyperproductivity, turnings and turns out, shaped this in-between conversation. Our wish? To add more flavors to a reality that seems to be stuck in one single flavor. When we were in Paris, that was really literally the beginning of everything. That was so weird. I arrived on the 18th of January in Paris, I think. And then I just started installing the work. I was super happy. Also, the place I lived, I stayed, was really close to the space. So every day I could just walk and never took a subway. I didn't really read any news also because I was busy. But suddenly I slowly noticed on the street, everybody was giving me away. So it was super weird. <laughs> I think I told you about this. Normally in Paris, people are really crowded, you know. I mean, there's a huge Chinese community in Paris. Everybody, they're super used of seeing lots of Chinese people in Paris and endless Chinese restaurants, a lot of shops. That was the only time that when I was walking on the street, everybody was giving me away. But then, you know, I also bought this new jacket that is my kind of dream jacket 
So in a way, I thought, what people give me away because of uh, that I look extra good or something. <laughs> then I was uh, chatting with my mom and my sister on uh, WeChat, which is a Chinese chatting social media. And then they told me there was the virus going on seriously in China. Then I started to follow news. Then I talked to a friend in Paris. Apparently back then, there were only two cases discovered in entire France. But then, of course, everybody was updated to the news. So that was the tension sort of on the street. I was so much focused into the show and also into meeting my friends, including you. You came for the show, like super exciting in a new context, in a new city that we meet. All kind of flavors suddenly just being blended in. And then at the end, all the flavors slowly, slowly uh, disappeared. It just became uh, leaded by this one flavor, which was the coronavirus. And then everything just quickly dive into this one taste of the virus. But that was it. At the beginning, then my sister was telling me all kind of news that she read on social media. And then my mom was just kind of followed whatever general idea that was floating in the air. I mean, that's the thing about news in China. I don't think anything is ever really consistent. It's a bit like, I don't know, hunter and gathering way of living. You go out, you bump into a news or you bump into a neighbor or a friend, whatever they tell you, it becomes a piece of information and it's like a seed. And then it just starts to grow in your mind, regardless if it's really true or not, but it is as a material for you to consider. So I think that's for me, in a way, of how information is spread in China. It's never really based on any consistency. Like here, we draw a line, this is news, this is official and that and that. I don't think that kind of situation really existed. I mean, there is official news, but it's sort of being always ignored and overlooked I think people really like to turn into each other to find truth by speaking to people. I mean, now with internet and social media, it's super, super easy, but at the same time also extremely blowed up because then it creates a secondary problem of the inconsistency of the source of truth for news, for any information. With the SARS, I don't remember so well. That was 2003. I mean, I was living with my mother and my sister in my hometown. And my mother was working in a supermarket back then. And then I remember like all over the news, it was quite serious. Everybody knew that they should not go out. They should just stay home. It's sort of like now. But back then there was no internet. So everything was relying on TV. Everything was relying on news from TV, not from a phone or internet at all. I think many people didn't really care. Like my mother is like the typical Chinese in her generation, in a way, the one that didn't go for the, how do you call it, cultural revolution movement, because she was not one of those, I don't really know the English term, you know, the little red army youth, maybe a bit like the Hitler youth type of feeling. So she wasn't part of that. So in a way, she never really had the feeling of being in a great a community fighting for anything. But then she behaves 
kind of the opposite. Whenever there's this kind of news on TV and she knows and she would say like, ah, oh, this is all bullshit, it's not good. And then uh, this is all conspiracy, it's all made up. Don't trust it. Everything is okay. So every day she would just went out to work as normal. But now I think with internet, maybe it has to do with a phone that is object that is so close to your body that you literally your hand is glued on the phone 24 hours a day. When you sleep, you put the phone next to your bed. And then when you wake up, the first thing you do is to look into the phone. So my mom does that too. It's not like she knows how to use internet as young people but I think she got scared because of the different source of news that from the internet in what way on the internet is it official websites from the news agents or is it social media then on tv then it's among people it's from a mouth to mouth or from every side this kind of the news of the virus is spreading so that creates an extra strong fear than in 2003 so my mom is a person and she's been like a punk. She never wears a mask. She never cares how she looks. But now suddenly she's like, okay, I'm going to wear a mask. But then when things got escalated until now, you have to wear a mask by law. If you don't, they could arrest you and so on. So it is already quite different. The change is within three months. That is pretty quick, I think. In China, I think that the reason that they could control the virus so well is because I don't remember things when the structure actually is embedded in all the big or small Chinese cities. They would call it something like, maybe you could translate in English to say a mini community. Here, if you live in Berlin, you go into the entrance of your building, then you get out and everything is open. But in China, every couple of blocks, they would be uh, gathered together and then uh, they make a fence outside of those couple of blocks to call it as one mini community. And then they would create a minimal two or three exits. So by each exit, there would be always like a little room. I don't know how you call it. And then it's for the security guard or the caretakers. It's not for coronavirus. It's always has been there. So it's just for a kind of a community service, taking care of the whole community and watch out for the people. So this setup during the virus, I think is quite crucial because they can easily and quickly control people who goes out and who comes in. And then every day there would be only one person from one household is able to go out to do a grocery shopping. So then when you go out, you have to carry a kind of identity letter and to say that you are the one from your family household that is responsible to get out of the house and nobody else can. This kind of super highly control and at the same time they also check your body temperature so they know when, what time you have been to where. In this way of control is super easy and super efficient but that's not the case for Europe. I mean here no country has that setup so I think that makes a huge difference in a way. China, there is no all of this blaming game. I think, in a way, nationally, they are quite uh, united. Everybody knows, don't trust a number and so on. Like, all the death numbers every day, like, just don't trust it. Like I said before, the official story, it's kind of parallel to everybody's 
real life, it doesn't really cross. The official remains official, and people's life remains people's life. The question is, in China, why it works so well? I think because, like I was saying before, the caretaker or the security guard in each of the mini communities in every city in China, the image of the situation is presented to people as that they want to take care of you or you should take care of yourself. So because it's called a mini community and it's from your own life initiative that from your own backyard. So there is no, it seems like there is no from top to down order that someone just plays a police or a bodyguard in front of your house. Emotionally, that doesn't feel like that. So then I think during the virus, people are really going for really obeying the rules and 100%. If someone doesn't do that, everybody would kind of criticize this person. There has been no like blaming game. Like, okay, you from Wuhan, you, did, you made this and we are from Beijing. No, we didn't do it. When the situation went international, so China now is slowly recovering, there might be a second wave, as everybody said. And the feeling of now is that I feel there's some kind of subconscious emotional reaction to the international news, as if like people feel slightly jealous the Chinese, not everybody, I'm just generalizing in a way, that people feel like, for example, like at the very beginning, the Wuhan lockdown, there were a lot of videos circulating on the social media of people being locked down in a, I don't know, 24 floors skyscraper uh, building. Everybody from their balcony, they were singing. Uh, and then there was a Chinese New Year time. And also different cities, they would project light decoration to say, we support you, Wuhan, we support you for fighting. So every big city would lighten up that in their city landscape in the night. It's not exactly uniquely to the Chinese people. Now you have seen like Italian people gather together on a balcony singing. You've seen it happen in Spain. You've seen it happen in New York. I think there's a feeling of Chinese people who say like, hey, wait a minute, that was our intimate secret. Now that everybody also have that all over, what is going on? So it's not like jealous in the sense of, no, you should not have it. It's not the issue of who owns the right to have the original feeling of feeling bad or sharing that particular intimate moment with that particular way. In this case, it's the singing. It's a sense of belonging to a much bigger picture. Like it's not just a national problem, it's a global problem. So this somehow makes people feel really excited. Finally, we are connected with the rest of the world, regardless what the reason could be. So it brings a little bit of joy in a way, but then everybody's always sad about hearing stories in Italy and death numbers from Spain. It's very mixed emotion. It's very hard to pull yourself out of this soup of emotions and then have a clear mind to say that I actually feel sorry about this or I actually feel bad or I actually feel good. You cannot really pinpoint your feeling. So especially with the news that is not so consistent or information in general cannot be consistently transmitted. So in that sense, everything has no beginning or no end. You're just always a swim in the middle. So then I kept thinking, like for example, with COVID-19, it actually offers us only three types. 
A first type is anyone could potentially be infected. And the second type is that you are already infected. And the third type is you either die or you recover. So the three types, it should be like a chronological, you know, there is a time sequence. But we are dealing with so many different cases in so many countries all at once. The kind of different time and space sequences are being all compressed at the present, which is called now. It's the same as that we have all this unnamingly you cannot really point out clearly which feeling you have at the moment. You also cannot really point out when and how the virus works in what way. Everything is just happening now. It's, I mean, in that sense, I found it exciting, but not in a happy, happy way. It's, it's just very mixed. I don't think feminism is really a big topic in China. For my own understanding, I think that why feminism is never really a big topic in China is not exactly because it's dictatorship, but I think it's because that, for example, after 1949, China reformed itself into a communism society. So in that sense, they followed the big brother from Russia, they followed this whole Soviet idea. They never really created anything that is specially customly made for China, but they could only develop something special based on real situations. For example, famine happened in the 50s, cultural revolution in the 60s and 70s. I think because of the communism structure that all men and women should be equal, that, that was the ideal part of the communism ideology. The men and women are equal, they should all go work in the factory, regardless where you are, everybody it's equally important to the society. So then I think because of that, that kind of energy is still carries on today. In the 90s, China had an economy reformation. Everything became privatized. A lot of people lost their jobs from a government-owned factory, but then they started their own business, and then uh, everybody sort of got really wealthy and then in this whole movement a lot of like CEOs and the boss of a company they would be women and women would be in a, a very high position in all sort of jobs and they would be paid equally so I think in a sense there is no officially or on a bigger picture or just the general mentality of the Chinese that there is no inequality between genders but then there's this another uh, idea kicks in, which is the more traditional uh, culture that in the countryside, especially is still happening today, that if you have a newborn baby, everybody knows that everybody wants a boy instead of a girl because you need a labor to farm the land. And then also traditionally a boy carries the family blood. So that still sort of carries on in the countryside. But in the city, I think it's very little. Also, I think the translation of feminism in Chinese, I always found it a little bit misleading. Maybe in English itself also misleading. I mean, Chinese, you translate it into the power of women. It means that, first of all, there is acknowledgement of power. That means that there would be one leading group, then everybody else would obey the leading one. So then it used to be men, but now it should be women. It sounds like that. I know it doesn't mean that. I think that creates 
an initial problem also in the understanding of feminism in China, also because this feminism is such a Western idea. If you say feminism in China, everybody would say like, oh, that is so Western. And then you would have a two types of reaction. One type would be people really go for it. Yes, I agree. I'm a woman. I agree with this. And this is not a Western idea, even though the movement is originated somewhere else instead of China. But then you have the second group react would be like, uh, no, this is so Western, we don't care. This is nothing local about it. So in a way, by giving this term, it blocks the actual struggle or the actual content, what people should really focus on, what feminism really means in terms of Chinese issues. But then I found it's also interesting in China, everything is never really black and white. The situation is always a big mess. It's always in a big soup. You have all kinds of ingredients. You put it in, you take it out. Oops, something else happened. Then you have to deal with it. It's never, never really um, clear. And for example, like there was this funny uh, picture my sister just sent me. It's a meme. So on the meme, there's a dog, and then uh, around the dog, there will be like a couple of sentences as a comment. So on top, the comment would be, in Spain, the country has been locked down completely, so nobody can get out. But if you are a dog owner, you can actually go out for work. And the second sentence would be like, and this dog in a building has been borrowed by 28 neighbors in one day and going out for a walk 35 times. Then uh, the last sentence would be uh, coming from the dog. The dog says, after all, I saved all of you. It's super weird. If you look carefully, it's a picture lying on a couch, really exhausted. But if you look carefully, the dog is not lying on a couch, exhausted. It's the dog that actually stuck in the couch. So who knows where, who got this picture on the internet from which source. By adding this sentence, it seems to be a hard evidence. There you go, you have a picture, you have a comment. This is the most elaborate report of the current news. But then it's completely uh, false, it's completely not true. But the image is not true, the sentence, the, the meaning is not true, but the sense that it transforms is based on a, a true situation. So they use uh, fake things to express a true fact, kind of demolish the actual meaning of truth. I found it super weird. I think the whole policy started in the beginning of the 80s, the single child policy. So I was born exactly at that time. And then I remember that my mother was telling me that before birth in the hospital, they would uh, give you a piece of paper to say, you have to uh, sign the paper to say, do you want this child or not? You have to decide because it's the second officially not supposed to have. But then my mother said, yes, I would choose to have the child. So then they paid a lot of fine every month. I think since I went to uh, primary school at age of six and a half. And I remember that I couldn't go to a normal kindergarten because I'm the second. I could only go to some kind of uh, community caretaker place for uh, little kids. So yeah, I didn't really learn all these 
the cliches the Asian kids will learn at age of three they play piano at age of five they're good at mathematics and I didn't really go through any of that but then on the other hand I think I'm super super happy because in that sense I don't feel like I've been trained since such a young age and my mother always say you are the little fish that too small that fall off the bigger the fishing net that they can't catch you <laughs> So I always felt uh, quite lucky. Since I grew up, I never experienced any uh, gender inequality experiences. I never really had anything like that. I was never even bullied by being a second child or anything. So as if the second child, it, it's not really there. It's just in my head. It's a bit like a fiction. And then it doesn't even become my identity, but it becomes your personal history. It becomes your memory. Because I remembered how it was in this uh, caretaking kindergarten place. I remember how it was uh, going to school that it's nothing really official. and But the decision is entirely official. I mean, the decision of having such a policy. People always say a bureaucracy is a bureaucracy, but it gets extremely personal at the end. Yeah, being in... Netherlands uh, since 2006 and uh, for so many years every year I had to apply for visa for a permit to stay so then every year there was going through an entire ritual you don't know what's the future ahead for you you don't know if you can stay or not every year you have sort of pack your emotions your feelings and reshape yourself a little bit be prepared for two scenarios one is to go away one is to continue whatever your life has been growing in that new place obviously i mean i chose to come here nobody forced me and i chose to stay nobody forced me to but I don't think that's the argument because if once you get to a new place, life just starts to grow. I think my sister told me once, that's why like in the old times, the, the monks uh, in China, they never stayed in one temple more than seven days. Because after seven days, you start to grow attachment. All the new sparks from your life and start to become something so you cannot live anymore maybe it's a bit like a horror movie you're trapped in a house or something. but uh, it's really true it's your emotion that has been uh, catching up with your physical location it doesn't mean that okay i pack my bag 10 years later i can move on and to a new place it doesn't work like that i consider myself extremely lucky person being a second child and now i'm in berlin in a way it's a quite a journey somehow but I think this cliche of the Asian women being obedient, it's a sort of popularized from a Japanese pop culture, from movies, from music and so on. I mean, that's what people from the West know about. I don't think I can generalize the whole Asia. I think I can only speak for East Asian countries, such as Japan, China and Korea, this kind of triangle corner. We are neighboring countries, we share quite similar culture from the past and especially I think for Confucianism was a quite a big uh, connecting the three countries until today that we share sort of similarities on the path of developing the idea of Confucianism differently. I mean I think it's much less in Japan, much much more in Korea but in China Confucianism has been killed because of communism time. But now it's slowly coming back. I never really read any book about Confucianism, but just being a Chinese, I have a sort of my own version of that. I always like to talk about the dark side of the Confucianism. We talked about this before as well. Confucius, which is the philosopher who developed this whole idea, at the beginning, I think he, he really meant to have 
a civilized society that equal for everyone. He meant for having a system that works like a magic to solve all kind of social crises of violence or political issues. I really believe that. But then since the system worked so well, I mean, any system at the end is about how people perceive them. It's about how people live with the system and develop it into mutating into something else. I mean, not necessarily a bad thing. So then for Confucianism, and I think slowly, slowly, at least in China, it developed into something like a kind of self-enslavering system because China has been a family-based culture. So everything starts with a family the individual that you are born with your parents in this family, your small nuclear family. So then as the son or the daughter, you should obey to your direct parents because they give you life and then you owe them flesh and bone and you owe them for everything. So for the rest of your life, you have to obey them regardless, conditionless. Whatever your parents say, they're always right. They're never wrong. Even though they're wrong, you should not fight against them. You should try to understand and go with what they want. So this is how your life starts as a baby. And then uh, from the immediate family, then you have all your cousins and you have uh, your uncles, your aunts and all these people, your grandmother and two pairs of grand grandparents. And then from there, you should also respect them, obey them because they are your siblings, they are your blood relatives. You should take their benefits or their well-being as a first consideration and put yourself as a second. And then from there, you grow out again. Obviously, you will have a lot of friends. So your friends are also like the third layer of your relationship. And you should take your friends, you should treat them really well. Their well-being is better than yours. You should respect them first and then think of yourself second. And then from there, extend to where you work. It used to be if you're a farmer or if you would be own your, your little restaurant or doing whatever job, and then uh, you should obey everybody else and that in your job, that in contact with you. You should uh, take their well-being as a first consideration. So at the end, you think, wait a minute, what about me? Like every step in my life from my birth to my death, everything is on top of me. So then if you take it as a principle of living, you continue with your life, after a while, you grow a kind of emotional reaction to that. So this long-term collective emotional reactions, I think it creates some kind of uh, the virtue of suffering. Suffering has become, this self-devaluing, this self-suffering has become almost like a capital to make the other one notice that you respect them, to let anyone else know that you take their well-being better than you that you come as the most friendly person ever. So I think this, in a way, is a violence. In a way, it's a self-enslavery system. And then it's been there, I don't know how long, 2,000 years in China. It has been through so many different stages and this whole Confucianism development. So it's so deeply embedded in everyone. And this self-enslavery, it becomes nameless. You can't even find a source or an, even a spark of an idea to even think about, wait a minute, that's not good. But then nowadays, the problem is after colonialism, now we are in the post-colonial time. If people think, wait a minute, what about me? Then people will think like, wait a minute, again, this what about me? argument sounds like totally Western. 
that's not very cool. It's not like a Chinese who against anything comes from West. But because of the 200 years of shameful history, they would like to be independent. They would like to be once for all after the whole economic growth until now. We should be able to feel proud of what we have originally. Just pause a little bit, keep the Western idea all out and think from your own backyard what would be. So then this Confucian idea suddenly kicks back again. Even now, after the equality of working in the factories and so on, but now to prove that you are the new wealthy from the new wealthy class or middle class, to prove that you are civilized, you have a good education, it's kind of going back to have the old way of behaving, which means from men and women, which means that you should be proud of being a housewife. You should be proud of that you belong to a man, that man goes out to earn money, you are taking care of the household. So this is a sign of wealth. This is a sign of civilized well-being. It's super, super twisted. I mean, weirdly, it might tap into the third wave of feminism, you know, be proud of what you have, feel free to be what you are. It's weirdly synchronizing, but it's not really coming from the same source. It's like you said before, that we kind of feel like we're being stripped down of being super, super useless because we can only be locked down at home. We cannot go out to work. We cannot setting up exhibitions and things getting postponed and so on. I mean, like a lot of other people doing different jobs. And then it's this particular moment that we notice what kind of jobs are still running. It's actually the most lowest paid jobs, like a factory production, cleaning the streets, it's all these very basic jobs that normally people are taking granted of, they never think of. But now it's these people risking their lives and, like you said, making the society running that make us to be able to stay home and watch uh, movies online. If I think of in terms of China, I think it's a luxury to be a gender unequal. It's not really a class issue, but it's also a thought. Because if you're from a poor family... In the countryside or in the city, I mean, now all the countryside farmers are being uh, moved into a smaller and a bigger city to find a new job. So China has this idea of turning the 70% of citizens who are farmers into the 70% of citizens who actually would live in the city. They would uh, dramatically reduce the capacity of farm industry in China. So I don't know what's their plan for maybe importing from other continents, other countries, I don't know. But what I wanted to say is that um, if you are from a normal or poor family, you cannot afford to discriminate women. Everybody has to go out to work. Everybody has to work equally with a certain amount of hours, try to earn as much money as you can. Only when you have a lot and lot of money or super, super rich, you can afford to be a housewife, which may not be your first choice, but it's identity thing. You have to be uh, presenting yourself in a kind of salon or private clubs and so on. So you have to be the representative, the female image of your household. And that is really, really old-fashioned, traditional, uh, going back to 100,000 years. And China as a society used to be organized like that only. Now it's a sign of also getting back to your own uh, Chinese identity. So even the cultural inequality even has a flavor of 
of being cultural, of being uh, authentic, of being uh, Chinese again. It's quite twisted, to my opinion. So it's very hard to have a Western pair of eyes helicoptering yourself into China to see the situation. I think China is not a place anybody can say that I like it or I don't like it. It's a place a completely just a phenomena. So once you go there, it's almost like an open page. You don't need to read any theory. You don't need to be an intellectual. But just by working on the street, you understand how society works. Because you see the clothes you wear is made by that person coming out of the factory that passed by you on the street. You see everything. You see It's a complete society. The production, the consumption, everything is at once. And then you see within this whole economic boom with this whole keep going, 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 never look back kind of speed. You see how people behave in terms of gender because, again, that is not an issue anymore. Maybe still in the countryside, but I'm talking about in the economic life. I'm talking about lives in the cities. It's quite different than here. If you mention to a Chinese person about feminism, and they would be like, what? What, what do you mean? That's so Western. <laughs> You were saying about this factory life with women working in a factory. I mean, I really remember me and my sister were living with my father between the age of maybe 10 to 16 or something like that. So then during these years, my mother was living somewhere else. She was also working somewhere else. At the beginning, that she was still working in a fabric factory in my hometown, in the city center. Now I have a memory of my hometown that is this really cold gray, dark place in the winter. There was no color of green. I mean, I don't know why somehow I remembered winter really strong. In this fabric factory, my mother's job was to carry a huge rolls of mostly felt fabrics. So those were going to uh, be exported into uh, other countries. I remember there were really color of this intense green, intense orange, intense red in this super, super dark brown, gray, black, blue-colored factory building, really high ceiling and many floors and huge elevators so you can bring your wagons in and out. I think the wagon would be like two, three meters long or something in a square shape. So you could put lots and lots of those rows of fabrics. So my mother's job was to put those rows of felt onto a table with light source from above. So she had little pinzette to take out the kind of defects or little threads to clean up the fabric centimeter by centimeter, rows by rows. And then I would be just waiting for her to finish her job. I remember I slept so many times in those wagons among those rows of fabric that was really comfortable, really cozy because they were really fluffy and hugging type, but they smelled horrible. They smelled like a pure chemical ingredients. So that was really the sensation of love from your mother, the sensation of being um, used to the factory situation, but also at the same time extremely um, excited about it because it's familiar, but also unfamiliar. I really remember all her colleagues were also women. I did not see any men at all. So then we also didn't have a shower at home. We also had to shower in the factory. And then in the shower room, the only women, they were just quietly cleaning themselves, also cleaning their own kids. So that was the social place happened, always in the factory. 
So for me, the split of family was either on the side with mother, so mother would represent entire society for me, who paid my tuition fee mostly, who raised me, who fed me. But then on the other side, I also had my father, which who cooked for me every day. So who was really in my life or who composed the meaning of life in a way for my early teenager time? Both were there, but separately. Now I think back as if I had some kind of different parallel life in different parallel universe. So that's how it felt. In terms of the female labor in factory, I think in the late 80s, this factory structure was really coming from the beginning of the communism idealism, which was the beginning of 50s and middle and the end of 60s. Back then, everybody was working in the factory, men and women, because like you said, there was the left-wing idealism, the fight of having a new build-up country with your bare hands. That kind of passion was much stronger than any other passion. If you could have any other passion, it would be even a shameful one to have, you know, compared to the passion of building up a country, the passion of everybody go out to work equally, compared to that passion, your own private passion, possibly towards someone, that would be a little bit more shameful because it's much lighter, it's not important. Or your passion about anything else would just be um, soaked into the much bigger, much more important uh, current passion of the new country, the building up the actual equal fair society potentially for everyone so i think it really really happened and that really set up the whole pace the whole rhythm that lasted a couple decades after of course then in that situation the equalitarian labor phenomena suddenly just built up but then i don't think that was a consciously built up there was never really a discussion or a conscious fight for gender equality in the workplace. It was just involved in under a bigger picture, was really just a byproduct from a bigger context, uh, which was the bigger passion that killed or evolved everything in it. If you think of a private love, or I mean, love among people, not private at all. And I said private just because in comparison to the bigger picture, which is the building up a nation and so on. So if I think of that, for example, since I grew up, I see if you see a typical young heterosexual couple in the public in China, without them wanting to display themselves, but then you would see the man would always carry his girlfriend's luxury handbags. A young man in relationship would always in public appearing carrying a woman's bag. Wait a minute, why a man would carry a woman's bag? It seems like somehow a man would admit that women's position is more important, but I don't think that's exactly the fact or the truth in a political level. If you go to the restaurant, you will see a girl would be eating with her boyfriend or her husband, and without communication, she would suddenly throw a certain part of the food from her plate onto his plate. And she would say like, uh, oh, I don't eat this because I'm in a diet. I want to lose weight. So then uh, he would accept that gesture not as offense, but as some form of love. And then this girl would also turn to her girlfriend and to talk about 
a strategy how to control her boyfriend, like where he goes and who he speaks to, how who he chats on the social media and at what time and what hour what he does. So she's monitoring him at all time. It sounds really twisted and weird, but somehow it offers people a sense of attention, a sense of unique, intimate secrecy that the whole world somehow is watching. So in a way, your body is mine, your consciousness is mine, and that is somehow a regular Chinese romance. In all these double-sided voluntary behaviors, it seems women are in control, but it's not in the under political awareness. It's just somehow the twisted way of male-dominated society still. In that sense, it's also more traditional. So I wonder that how feministic it is or how feminism can find a place in this Chinese setup in whatever form that feminism can fit in Chinese scenario. I mean, I'm really curious about it too. From my own memory of growing up uh, for a couple of years when my mother was working in this factory, I spent endless time also in the factory. I know how the factory looked. I know every corner. I know my way in and out. But then that was my only personal actual experience with a factory. After that, I never entered a factory ever. Also, I mean, in the past, there's so many documentaries. Everybody liked those subject factories in China. They are taking such a big order. They actually make entire factory a collection of factories as a city. So in this uh, factory city, they would have like uh, hospitals and hotels, and they have a, a little city hall that you can register to get married and to get divorced and so on and so on. So you never leave this quarter factory. That's your life, basically. You could literally be born and raised and die in this factory if you want to. It's all there. I remember watching all these documentaries just because I can read the face really well. I'm from the culture. I can read their expressions. And then you really see that they really need each other. I mean, in this factory, it seems to be a bigger collective social way of living. Everybody is all together at once, like the crowd. Actually, everybody would find their best friends or find their husband, their wife. Underneath this umbrella of the collective way of living, the true relationship among people is still the nuclear relationship of your small family. When they finish their work hours, they go to their so-called home, which I imagine it's a room next to your worker's room and next to the other worker's room in your own room you would have your wife or your husband and they would be ah oh, finally i can take off my outer shell my mask i would be the true self you start your actual life together by talking about oh what did you do today oh okay maybe i'm gonna get extra salary next month so the life is still happening in the nuclear structure and that i think has to do with the tradition that china is a family-based culture for a very long time even though the whole modern factory structure, I think that really somehow cannot break that. I mean, even in a not harmonious family structure, like a husband might abuse the wife or the wife might do something to harm the husband. But even that, they are still considering themselves that they need each other to survive somehow because of the pre-injected idea of the nuclear family is really life support generally speaking, as really the basic structure, regardless of the condition of that. Before I also heard this really nice radio program from this 
he called himself Marxist and he's named uh, Richard Wolff. He made this program called Democracy at Work. He lives in New York, so it's a whole American thing. He's an economist. I think every week he has a little radio program that uh, speaks about workplace or uh, capitalism through an economic perspective. And then his wife is also a psychotherapy uh, psychologist. She's always appeared on the program and she would always talk about the domestic life and the female labor, like what you said before, unpaid labor, right? And she was saying that, for example, the divorce rate suddenly got so high at the end of 70s in the States because the factories all moved outside of the States, mostly to China. And then uh, so suddenly this privilege of being the dominating male, which is the column that holds the whole family, the whole household. He was the only uh, income source for the whole family. Suddenly he lost his job and he lost his identity in the family. So he basically lost everything. And then women for that had been a housewife for a very, very long time, doing all the household works and taking care of the children in the house. At the same time, they were actually, and still is in many cases, the psychotherapy and the therapy to help the men to be mentally healthy. So they actually did so much work. When the husband lost job, they also had to go into a job market to find a job. But then on their resume, they said they had been 10 years for a housewife. So that means they had no resume, but which is completely insane because they did so much work. Their work was so important, but was completely jeopardized, thrown into trash for being labeled as nothing. All these women suddenly, when they actually can't find a job, realize, wait a minute, why do I need a husband? Why do I need a man? They have no use in my life whatsoever. So, no, there you go with divorce. I'm better on my own. <laughs> I'm just simplifying it, but she speaks so well. I can't remember her name, so I can't really provide solid uh, information. When I talk, I like to give names because then other people can have something to take with them. Otherwise, I'm always the source for everything. I don't like to be the source. I like to be the communicator. The original speaker can say it better. When I say it, it's a different scenario. snobbish way when it comes to food you know we shall eat as clean as possible but obviously it's all constructed for example in china if you are in different regions that how people eat are quite different i mean china is a huge country china used to be a hundred small kingdoms and fighting each other and so on they all had different cultures so then the first empire kind of united the whole country maybe it's a bit like how germany used to be a smaller smaller places so all the tradition today is especially in food really coming from this uh, long distance past from very local so i never even heard of this kind of wild animal market i'm from the north i never never went or heard or experienced anything like that i never saw anybody eat cats or dog or those weird things and then people claim that all chinese seems to eat but then I just read an article that they say that the Chinese government is going to ban eating a dog meat. It's a huge thing in China, but it's not. It's a very small amount of people doing that. Chinese people are really curious people. When you see an animal trapped in a cage in the market, everybody would be surrounded and look at it. What is it? And so on. I do admit there is maybe, I'm generalizing again, there is a sense of not respecting the rights for any other entity to be living on this earth somehow. When people would first think of, oh, how am I going to eat this animal? 
That might be the case, but I'm generalizing. There are people also say, okay, I should eat clean. I only eat chicken breast, you know, no other parts of chicken, no intestines. Like, ugh, no. Isn't it more ethical if you have to kill the animal? You should eat everything from this animal. Nothing goes to waste. So you should actually eat the intestines and the feet and the head and the, the tongue, the eye and everything you can. Isn't that the better image if you have to eat meat? This whole white veganism, by giving this label, it kind of hijacks or diminishes other culture that has always been eating vegan food. Vegan food was a major diet, at least for most of Chinese, for a very, very long time. Because affording meat was luxury. I believe the same story for other cultures too. Traditionally, cooking in Chinese, I only know from the northern side, there's so many vegan dishes that nobody even give it a label to. It's so normal that you just eat. But here it becomes such a thing. I found it weird. <laughs> Many of this food is really for tourists in general, like display for tourists, scorpions and all of that. And no people really, really eat it. I mean, even if local people want to eat it, it's set up for a kick. It's almost like an amusement park or something. They don't really eat it, eat it. If you really kill an animal, I think from a countryside, you might have your own animal and you kill the whole animal, you cut it open and then you eat everything. It's almost like a ritualistic gesture by eating the entire everything from an animal. If you just select like cherry picking the best part of the meat in a conventional way, and then you ignore the whole life as a food chain that is supported for you. Eating a whole part of the animal really gives you a sense of connecting to your food source, not just a clean chicken breast packed and sealed in a plastic bag with a cool design in the supermarket, even labeled bio on it, you know, not just that. Germany, in Netherlands, in this area of the world. My feeling is after the, the viral situation, looking on the bright side, I think that would actually inspire people to try to focus on a bigger picture instead of soaked into your own private life and being happy. Oh, how much money I have? What should I get? How comfortable can I behave? It kind of raises a lot of smaller, fragmented questions, but big questions. But together, when all these questions meet together, I think we are able to compose a bigger picture of the, what is the actual soup of the crisis that is happening now. From the COVID-19 issue, then I'm coming from an apolitical society. So in the last couple of years, I started to read news. Actually, I can only read news on an English newspaper. So I found Guardian is very convenient for me. So I mostly only read the Guardian newspaper. So at the beginning, I even thought the Guardian's a left-wing newspaper, but it's actually not really left. So I was like, oh, oh, okay. So in a way, I've been slowly, slowly peeling off the layers of all these masks and covering and find out at least that a certain truth that is true for me. Slowly, I also found the Guardian as a newspaper is ex extremely biased. It tend to be super, super neutral. It tend to be fair and 
rational. I mean, it is. It depends on what news you read. Who is telling me it's it's a focus on the Anglo-Saxon societies, like England, America, so that kind of area. So then, when you read the news about that, there is a consistency in that. But if you read the news about the rest of the world, like for example, especially about China, there's like no go. It's completely biased against China. And I found it super, super weird. But then I'm the person I never read Chinese news. Then where should I go? <laughs> By being locked down at home in Europe, the bigger, bigger picture question it's slowly, slowly merging in different ways for everybody. But I think in China it's the opposite, or it's entirely not the case, because. If you look at Chinese economy that has been doing so well, I still remember the, the old days. I mean, it was super poor. I remember my hometown in the 80s and 90s. Everything felt like this really dark, gray, full of factories. Somehow in my memory, there was never really days besides the springtime, which is not true. It's just my emotional uh, reading uh, towards my own memory. Actually, after I left China in mid of 2000. The entire country, everybody's life has dramatically changed, and I sort of missed that change until today. So the China I know personally is really outdated from ten, twenty years ago. But I'm trying to catch up. I mean, I'm from the culture; I can read it really well. Now, after the coronavirus, I have a feeling people would immediately going back to ultra ultra capitalism way of living because they are the ones have been only at the beginning to taste. The good side of capitalism. I don't know if the word is even correct anymore to say capitalism. So then they are the ones to taste what a good economy can bring to them. I then definitely don't want that to disappear. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a negative thing to want to have a good life. You know, to want to have enough for your life. But everything has to be in a context. If your life is based on Other aspects, the suffering or sacrificing for your well-being, then there must be something wrong. But if you are hungry for 50 years, this is the first meal you ever tasted. You want more, so I think that's the situation in China. I don't think people would have any dramatic political idea to even think otherwise. There might be, but I don't think it's going to be the general trend. I came from Rotterdam three weeks ago, so I actually have a studio at home. Every day I get up, just cross into another room, then I start working. So in a way, this whole outbreak, this whole lockdown, doesn't really have that big impact on my daily routine. I mean, I can still manage. At the moment, I just do a image editing on a computer, screen slave. <laughs> at the moment, I have everything ready. I have it here. I can just start anything, test, experiment, anything, anytime I want. And which was the plan anyway? The weird thing is that you have this. Outbreak, this lockdown in the back of your head. You know that every moment you step out of your house, your apartment, that you go on the street, you go to buy your food, that becomes really weird. Probably everybody feels the same. That we are being squeezed in two or multiple different kinds of realities, but we are not exactly any of them. Everything is being on hold. You're waiting. Everybody's waiting. What's gonna be? Everything's uncertain. So we are not exactly there. But then I think this panic, at least in the art world, leads to people that artists, curators, and everybody to extra, extra work hard. I don't know if it's 
the same thing as a panic buying of a toilet paper, but it's a kind of primal instinct. If something is in short or something is uncertain, you need to go for extra actions to kind of flatten that minus in a way. It sounds very logic, but at the end, it's nothing to do with logic. It's very emotional. I'm not really big on social media, on Instagram. It's just for self-promotion. It's made for that. Everything you put on, it has a flavor self-promoting. Regardless, you want it or don't want it, it's definitely going to promote you either way. Somehow, during the lockdown, everybody kind of need that to reach out to people. But every time, everything you reach out with people, every material, every content becomes a self-promotion. You don't want to be self-promoting. It feels so wrong and so bad. So you're again being stuck in between two facts that you cannot really do anything about it. You just try to share something, but then it always ends up in the wrong flavor, in the wrong position. It would definitely hurt someone's feelings. But then again, everybody would just keep clicking like to support you because you are friends of them anyway. If it is something so complex and so annoying, why should we all go for that anyway? But then people always say, yeah, but all my friends are using it. <laughs> it's the whole social media syndrome. Compared to the COVID-19, the current outbreak to the SARS in 2003, like I said before, there's a clear difference in how people organize their mental capacity to deal with the situation or direct actions in what they should do. The great difference would be the participation of internet of nowadays. We are entirely having this uh, digital uh, realm that we can actually uh, go into that leaving the internet world safely. And COVID-19 is supposed to be the actual issue, the center of the problem that people should do. We give all kinds of measurements in different countries, how everybody's been dealing with differently. When it comes to the art world, when it comes to the internet, this COVID-19 suddenly becomes just a stimuli. It's not even a content feed. It's just a stimuli to stimulate whatever the actual content comes after it. It gives people a new topic, it inspires artists for new artworks, new research, and so on and so on. I don't think it's wrong. Anything is out there that when we bump into it, we have a reaction to that. It's such a big global phenomenon, there's really hard to avoid not to think about it, not to do anything about it. Especially, I think, after this, maybe we will see endless artworks made, maybe not directly about the virus, but made about something around it, obviously. I found it very hard to, to imagine what would be the best scenario or what would be the worst scenario during or after this whole uh, COVID-19 uh, outbreak. Whatever I can think of, I tend to fall into this cliche uh, that is being depicted in the Hollywood science fiction movies. I really can't get away from that. Everything I can picture is something already being neutrally accepted, or at least that I want things to be neutrally accepted. On the other hand, I also don't want that because that doesn't make any sense because nobody is a neutral person. Neutral is abstract ideas like idea of nation, idea of a costume from the Spanish or from the Chinese, they would behave. But when you say they, there's not even a single person would really be like that. So it's very hard to imagine something 
worse or best in that direction. I think if I really have to imagine something, I would really like to take my time and sit down and write it down, just go back to it again and again. You are self-digesting your own thoughts. If you do that long enough or give it enough attention, then you might predict something that's actually really useful for you. If I just have an idea, it's just self-amusing, I found. I'm going to have this show in a Plan B gallery for the Berlin Art Weekend, which is supposed to be on the 1st of May, which is also amazing day for Berlin. That's also the Labor Day, for the Workers' Day celebration. The entire art world will also be in the Art Weekend. It's not going to happen. They, they're going to postpone that to September, but nobody really knows what's going to be. So right now I'm working to prepare several different scenarios and several different possibilities. Just you have to prepare that. Exactly like you say, that creates anxiety and frustration because there's nothing certain. And then I also have this other show in Paris. In the middle of the show, all the project spaces in Paris had to close down. So nobody could visit anymore. So they booked several events to happen during the end of the show. And that also got cancelled. I mean... I'm sure as so many artists, we are lost what will happen in the coming two months. This is entirely postponed or cancelled. It becomes a, a fossil fuel that gives you extra energy. Okay, I have to uh, keep going. And then I know I lost that. That's why that I have to work harder to get something equivalent back or even better than that. Someone told me that this person feels there is a very strong competition in the art world right now because you can see after the virus, after the whole thing, if we could sort of go back to the normal situation of how the art world has been running, there would be less money, there would be less opportunities. And then on top of that, a lot of artists have been working hard at home, prepared amazing new works for everybody. So then it's going to be a very high level of competition. That's what everybody also afraid of because after this, you want to hug your friends, you want to be socialized, you want to meet people again. You don't want to compete. We're going to be a dismatched from the situation. The situation is on one hand, on the other hand is your feeling, is your action. I don't know when we can be sort of synchronized. Maybe that kind of comfort or that kind of comfortable way of living is going to have an ending to it. But then it will have a good side to it as well. working with all these protein molecules. I mean, the reason that I started to look into all these molecules, not because I was interested in science at all. I've been working with looking into microscope for many, many years. And two years ago, somehow I started to notice uh, I have all the floaters in my eyes. So floater, it's a phenomenon that you see those warm, like transparent, gluey shapes in front of your retina. So if you look into the bright blue sky you see them or you look into anything bright as a background you see them when i look into the microscopic lenses and then i started to notice uh, the floaters i don't think i have significantly more floaters than anybody else it's very normal but when you pay attention to it for a very long time this looking at it observing it noticing it really becomes a habit so that habit made me really really uh, became really self-aware of this physical body and therefore I got into looking at the powerhouse of each cell in the body and so on and I went to find those 
proteins that gives energy to the cell and so on and so on. I didn't start to have this interest in science. I started to have interest in the body, in the actual thing, not in a theory, not in an abstracted idea, not in a concept, but really in the body, in the flesh, what's in it and how it is. But the ironic thing is that if you don't go through science, you will never really get to see it. I mean, I always say science or knowledge in general it really functions as a, it hijacks our direct experience to a certain level of reality simply because that level of reality, there's no way that we can access to. We cannot see it, it's too small. The same with a coronavirus, it's way too small. We're dealing with something extremely invisible. That becomes a, such a such a big problem. It's like you're fighting something, but you don't know. Wait a minute, am I imagining for my enemy, or what is going on? You're being ping pong in your head and like splatting. It's a very dramatic situation. Just everything is just happening in your head, not even communicating with anybody else. Even before that, just with yourself. In that sense, the study of all the molecules is actually the study of the actual nature. But then you have this barrier of science. Science is not a barrier, but knowledge in that sense, it stops you or to go directly with your own body and so on. I was never really into uh, science. I'm interested in it, but I never really wanted to make it as a subject in my work. After reading about all these molecules by looking into the microscopic lenses, then I suddenly I really realized that reality at this point for me might just be all about textures. Your hand has a different texture. The shirt you're wearing, your hair, the tabletop you touch, your computer. So all of this, even though we don't really have the sensation to it, but the sense, the feeling is still there. We just don't notice anymore. Those feelings are really composed reality for me. And then uh, all these different variations of looks, all the different textures of everything creates a different looks. So all these different looks, when we get to perceive them, we have either rational or emotional reaction to that. So then when we react to that, we have all kind of wishes and feelings. You know, you could be fantasizing certain things, you could feel joy, you could feel sad, you could feel bad or anything. So all of this feeling, I think, would naturally come to the point that we want to beautify things. So I think the beautification at the end is not really for making an artwork. Beautification is really almost like a self-therapy it brings you from a to b who says only suffering makes people think or makes people do great things i think joyfulness or happiness also can grant you access to great thoughts and so on this beautification also very much to do with the consumerism that we have been swimming in it for so many years to beautify or to the idea of making a virus approachable or easy to digest, or not so scary, not so harmful for you to perceive. I think it's maybe out of some kind of very primal instinct of self-protection. I'm a little bit generalizing it, but just that kind of sense, that kind of feeling, I think is very strong in many people, because most of people, we are not consistent. We don't really have a big theory. I don't know what is going on in the world. Even though I, I research, I read books and I study seriously for 10 years, I still wouldn't know what is going on economically or politically. Maybe we are just really the time that everything is just fragmented. We can never really have a bigger picture. This crisis of lacking of a bigger picture or think for 
a unity or united sense. It's very hard to achieve at the moment. The other day I was in a supermarket around the corner. That was the beginning of last week. They put up really, really uh, ugly protection gears for the CASA workers. I mean, I've seen it in Rotterdam. They made it super, super nice, very sleek, piece of a clean plexiglass and everything looks so good. The tapes on the floor for distancing is super, super neat. But here in the corner of the supermarket, they didn't even bother to care any of this, like a crime scene tape on the floor, super, super rough. And then they put like two, I think, leftover plastic from packaging, make a curtain, but tie them in the middle. So you create a little opening in the middle for the pin numbers. They hang it so ugly. It looks like a horror game that I was playing, this Resident Evil from many years ago. It looks exactly like that. You're just missing the, the splash of blood. But then I really found people really, really alerted. If you don't try to beautify the look of things, it really has a very strong effect a visual effect on people and you really get reminded, wait a minute, okay, I see the problem, I see the ugliness, I see the seriousness, I see that people don't even have a time to even think about make it looking good because that's entirely not necessary. So I kind of appreciate that ugliness in this context and not because it looks special or anything, just because it really, really works. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Instituto Susch, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all fields of knowledge that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch, that's institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Instituto Susch is part of Museum Susch, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation Switzerland and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found on museumsusch.ch. That's museumsush.ch. Recording and editing, Sonja Fernandez-Pan. Final editing, Elena Ziesel. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research assistant, Alice Wilke. Technical support, Esther Hunziger. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Promise No Promises is produced by the Art Institute HGK FHNW in Basel and Instituto Susch. ArtStations Foundation Switzerland 2020.